My heart is full, thankful for you and for him. Turn to Romans chapter 12. We're continuing our study in the book of Romans. I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and then we will focus on 11 through 13. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers or brothers and sisters, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body... We have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's follow God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for you to bless your word, to apply it to our hearts. May your spirit take the word preached and illumine and apply it according to each need. Plant gospel seeds. Work conversion in hearts. Edify saints. Lift high your son. Draw all kinds of people, your people, to yourself. Build us up. Bless us in the faith. Fortify our hearts to walk more and more faithfully for and with you in this dark world. So bless me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit. Help us to hear it with joy and diligence as your word, seeking to put it into application in our lives. For it is for your glory and our good that we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. He's on fire. She's on fire. What does it mean to be on fire for God? 
Maybe you think of somebody who's preaching and eloquent and going on with great force. Or someone who has um, flashy or showy spiritual gifts. Or someone who may be good at evangelism and always talking about their faith and talking about Jesus. But really, how can we see the fire of the Holy Spirit in a life? Because I promise you, we can do all those things without it. Not to say some preachers are not being blown along, filled with the Spirit, preaching the Word or exercising the gifts and things like their gifts. But what are the signs of true spiritual life? What are the signs that the Spirit is at work in the heart and in the life? What does it mean to be on fire for the Lord? Well, here's a quote for you. You've probably heard this one before. I've used it before. But Rick Ritchie says this, Dead churches are churches in which the gospel is not proclaimed. If the gospel is being proclaimed, the church is living. It may be stodgy, it may be tacky, it may be awkward. If the gospel is not being preached, however, it matters not if everyone is running around with sparks flying from their hair. The church is dead. So a living church, an on-fire church, or an on-fire person, is a church that preaches and applies the gospel, or someone who understands and lives in the light of the gospel. See, an on-fire church preaches the gospel and an on-fire person hears it, understands it, and in response earnestly seeks to follow Jesus. Someone who is on fire may be very outwardly quiet and reserved, but be one who takes the gospel seriously and seeks to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Flashiness is a no evidence of the presence of the Spirit. But I promise you, the fruit of the Spirit is. And we've talked about that before. But we're in a study of the book of Romans. We've seen that we all need a Savior, that Christ is that Savior, that through faith in Him we are made right with God, justified, declared righteous on the basis of Christ dying for us and living for us. Our sin imputed to Him and His righteousness imputed to us. He died for our sins and we get that salvation as a free gift through faith in Him. That we are, we therefore were in union with Christ and died and were raised with Him to newness of life. We're empowered for growth in grace. We are inescapably dwelling in His love and under the umbrella of His sovereignty. And that is a really quick summary, isn't it? But chapters 1 through 11 are the mercies of God that Paul's talking about in chapter 12, verse 1, that he exhorts us upon. And we've seen in chapter 12, and think about these things in chapter 12. Remember, we had very general, uh, we had a general theology of sanctification given to us in chapter 6 and 7 and 8. And now we're getting more into the details of that. But what we've done is transition into our growth in grace and how we apply the gospel in chapter 12. So we're talking about sanctification. These things we're talking about are things that the Lord promises to work in the hearts of those he saves. Sanctification, where we're renewed and enabled to more and more die to sin and live to righteousness. 
So as we see these things that Paul is exhorting us to, yes, as Peter would say, they are things that we make every effort to have be a reality in our lives, but it's gospel effort, trusting in His grace, depending upon His Spirit. But on the flip side, these are things that God promises to work into the heart and lives of those He saved. So the people that God saves will be, verse 1, living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to Him. They see that as the rational response to the gospel, not being conformed to the world, but transformed by the Word. Uh, those who are humble and serving and using the gifts that God has given them. And then we begin in verse 9 talking about genuine love. And really, it says in the ESV, let love be genuine. But if you look in the Greek, it's just two words, sincere love. Or genuine love. And then it begins with a bunch of participles to, to describe that love that is genuine. So we saw that a genuine love hates evil, loves good. A genuine love loves one another with brotherly affection last time and will press into outdoing one another in honoring both the Lord and brothers and sisters. And so we get a little bit more meat on the bone today. And you might have wondered why I entitled it On Fire for the Lord. And that you're going to see in verse 11 that that's where that came from. But today we're going to look at verses 11 to 13 and talk about being on fire for the Lord. And main point, be on fire by being eager to honor the Lord and your brothers and sisters in Christ. First, be eager to honor the Lord in verses 11 and 12, you know, we, it's God first. Even we, we talked about the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are Godward. Next six, second table of the law is first four verticals, second table horizontal. Same thing here. We begin when he says outdo one another in showing honor. First, we're, we're to strive to outdo one another in showing honor to the Lord. And just trying to help you see and remember that all this is connected and flowing together. We'll talk about love in the midst of persecution next time. But look back at verse 11. It says, do not be slothful in zeal. I'll mention that in a minute. Be fervent in spirit. You might have a translation that says, be fervent in the spirit. But fervent in spirit, that was an idiom that means to boil in the spirit. I almost entitled this sermon, A Boiling Spirit, but then I thought... It'll at least raise some questions. <clears throat> but literally, that's what it means to boil in the spirit or to have a boiling spirit. Well, how do we bring that into application or how, what it really means? Well, what it really means is, is show great eagerness. To show great eagerness. To be eager. That's where I got the word eager in the, in the point there. To show a great eagerness or to commit oneself completely to. To being that living sacrifice that looks like all of these characteristics. Boiling to serve the Lord with your life. And it probably, the reason you'll see translation struggle is, are we talking about the human spirit or the Holy Spirit? And I think probably they just say, uh-huh. Kind of like John does a lot of times in, in his writings. It's probably a reference to both the renewed human spirit and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We are to burn in our spirits to serve God in dependence upon His Spirit. 
The proper application, therefore, of the gospel is in this way to be on fire for the Lord. Burning in our spirits to serve God in dependence upon His Spirit and certainly His grace. But listen, listen to me. This will help you so much. There's so much foolishness on TV and out there in the, under the name of Christianity. When the Spirit of God is truly at work, He does not create sensationalism. But growing Christ-likeness. Remember, it matters not if sparks flying from everybody's hair. If the gospel is not the environment, it's not the Holy Spirit doing that. Oh, gosh, y'all know I struggle with that stuff. I'm going to move on. Just, just Let me just stop there. Believe that. If the Spirit is truly at work, He does not create sensationalism, but growing Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit. Hearts who humbly and joyfully are pressing into following Jesus. So being on fire, then, look at the first part of the verse. Do not be slothful in zeal. Being on fire is not spiritual laziness. It is not let go and let God. It is not neglecting to review the gospel daily and spend time with the Lord in word and prayer. Expecting by some magic you're going to grow and be okay and be on fire. That's not it. In the Christian life, in a lot of ways, you reap what you sow. God's put a bountiful buffet before you in His Word. If you won't eat, you will be malnourished. And you will reap misery and struggle and fear and all sorts of mess. If we neglect Verse chapter 12 forward. How do we apply the gospel? Being on fire means being diligent and earnest and disciplined because of His grace. Therefore, fervent, you see, is the English translation in the ESV. We are to burn in our spirits to live for Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Really getting and understanding the gospel should make me love him and want to live for him. Think about the demoniac who was in the tombs and was set free and wanted to go with Jesus. And he said, no, you go back and tell what wonderful things God has done for you. But see, chapter 12 should be, yes, absolutely. All right, just tell me what to do. Like Isaiah, here I am, send me after he had his experience, right? Nobody should have to press us to be in the Word or to be with God's people or to be in prayer or or all of these things. See, one who is on fire is one who serves the Lord. And that's still in our context and it's in this verse, serve the Lord. Is one who serves the Lord enthusiastically from a boiling spirit. One that's been set on fire or heated up by the Holy Spirit. So the Christian life is not a lazy life. And listen, it's not, it doesn't matter if you have 25 Bibles in your house. And if you sleep with one under your pillow, put one in the baby's crib. None of that matters. It's not meant to be a pillow. This has to be in our hearts. 
And listen, here's, the, here's what I'm trying to get. If you really get the gospel, you will want this to be in your heart. Because you will love Jesus and want to know Him. And know His Word and His will. So if we don't have a desire for Him and a desire for His Word, we didn't get the gospel. Maybe we got stamped on the head by a preacher who cajoled us into praying a prayer one day. And then told us never to doubt our salvation. We still live like hell, but at least we've got that assurance, right? No, no, no. That's what's called easy believism. God sanctifies the soul He justifies, and He works. He he boils the spirit of one He saves. And boy, if you just pull that out of context, all kind of craziness is going to come out of that sentence. He makes us willing, joyfully to live for Him. The baseline for Christian living is not ecstatic experience but joyful submission to the Lordship of Christ in response to the gospel. Not to be saved, but because I am saved. The baseline for Christian living is not ecstatic experience, but joyful submission to the Lordship of Christ. And see, joyful submission to Christ comes from Getting the gospel, seeing really who, who I am first, that I am lost and deserve wrath and need a Savior. And then that He is that Savior who has both lived for me and died for me and been raised for me and offers me salvation as a free gift. He took my hell and suffered my penalty. He fulfilled the law and provided my righteousness. And He gives Himself to me as a free gift, and therefore that should produce in me this desire to serve Him and love Him and follow Him. See, it's not legalism. Grace is the motivation for being on fire in the Spirit. Legalism just produces a grumpy person that nobody wants to be around. List people. They bang you over the head with their... They don't keep it, but they bang you over the head with it. See, joyful submission comes from getting the gospel. And the longer we walk with Christ, the more we understand the gospel and, and the more we know His glory and grace and our weakness and need. And therefore, we just grow in motivation. We grow in desire. We grow in zeal to love Him and to follow Him. Uh, Cross chart, if you've never seen this before, um, I've got a slide for you. It's a little bit blurry, but you have, this is your timeline. And this is you walking along in life and to the point where you're converted. Now, Christian, these things remain true and they, they continue to be true. From the point that you are converted, you, you grow in an awareness of God's greatness and holiness. And you grow in an awareness of your fleshliness and sinfulness and need so that the cross just keeps getting bigger and bigger. The more I really get the gospel, the more love I have for Christ and flowing out of that, then the more devotion I have to Christ. That's why Paul at the end of his life could say that he was the chief of sinners. But that God had had mercy on him, that he might be an encouragement that God will have mercy on us. So our proper response to the gospel, this is another element of it, is not to be slothful, let go and let God, not to be experience-oriented, just looking for the sparks flying from the hair, but to be fervent in spirit in service to the Lord out of love for Him. Look at verse 12. 
So remember, genuine love, and we, we have all these participles, and we're keeping on going with them, just describing this love. We've, we've seen that it, it is not slothful in zeal, but fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord. And in verse 12, one who is on fire for the Lord is one who first honors the Lord by, look at this, rejoicing in hope. Present participle there, continual rejoicing. Rejoicing in hope. What, rejo- what kind of hope? Gospel hope. The fact, the belief that Christ has, He has paid for all of my sin. He has provided for me a perfect righteousness. That I died and my life is hidden in Him. That with Him I died and was raised from the grave to newness of life. And it's as finished as though the Scripture speaks of me seated in heaven with Him because I'm in union with Him. No condemnation left for me because He took it all. And only... See, Christian, if you get this... What you have to look forward to, no matter what you walk through in this life, and especially in the, the culmination of this life, you, you have a confident expectation of grace. See, His throne is a throne of grace for you now. You have nothing to look forward to but grace. Grace in the midst of difficulty, yes, because this world is full of trials. But for His children, He never leaves them nor forsakes them. And it's better than that. He makes all the trials He takes them through work for them to make them more like Christ. Your life as a Christian, yes, you might be in the midst of a bunch of hard trials. And, and we, a lot of us are. And some of us have walked through things that we talked about in Sunday school. I mean, like John Owen who had 11 children and he outlived all of them. And only one of them made it into adulthood. And yet he wrote all this stuff about the gospel. Because he was rejoicing in hope. He had hope for future grace. The hope of the gospel. The hope of chapters 1 through 11. Let me just pause a minute and ask you what I ask you every week. I hope you don't get tired of it. Are you trusting in Christ Jesus and in Him alone? Is your hope for being made right with God in His death? in His life, in His resurrection. I mean, really, is it, is it a free gift for you? Are you still trying to earn it? Because we default every morning to a legalist who's trying to earn it. If we don't get the gospel in the picture early in the day, it's a recipe for misery. See, Paul is saying here, rejoicing in hope, the hope of the gospel, rejoicing in the hope of future grace. Christian, the, God, the work God began in you, He's going to finish and take you all the way home to new heavens and new earth where there, there, there will be no more death, crying, pain, or struggle. Here there is, but He walks with, with us through it and makes it work for us. Thing, if you're a child of God, things in this life can hurt you, but they can never harm you. They can never destroy your soul. They can never take away your salvation. They can never change the fact that you're a child of God. And in fact, they must work for you now. If you have never read Heidelberg Catechism Question 1, please read that. Meditate on it. Rejoicing. Look at that. Not just once. Okay. I got up in the morning and I rejoiced. We're done with that. We're on with our day. And now I'm just going to be miserable the rest of the day. Some of us have a disposition that's sort of tuned towards looking like we've been drinking pickle juice. 
But the gospel should put a smile on our face and an ease in our countenance and a joy that He's with us and for us. That every one of my days He's written down before there was one. He's in the midst of it. When I hurt, He hurts and He's making it all work for me and He's going to use me as light and salt. See, future grace, we have a growing confidence in the Lord's promise that we will share His glory. We, as we're our study in Ecclesiastes, we get our eyes above the sun to Christ enthroned for us, reigning for us, not to make us comfortable, but to make us like Himself and to use us to get His gospel to the ends of this earth. The gospel understood leads to an abiding rejoicing, and it's a rejoicing that transcends circumstances. How many of us ride the roller coaster of circumstances? When life's hard, we're down in the dumps. Oh, Lord, I can't do this anymore. Why then? <laughs> Slap yourself in the mouth when you start talking like that. Why me, Lord? Don't start singing that old song. No. Gospel rejoicing, gospel peace, gospel being on fire for the Lord is just resting. It's just resting in His grace. And walking with Him. Seeing the path He has blazed. Yes, it was a path of suffering. And if I'm going to live for Him, I need to be committed to that. But that commitment will be fueled by this rejoicing in His grace and His love for me. You want to know if God loves you? Don't look at your circumstances. Look at the cross. That's how you know He loves you. Don't look at your feelings either. This, this, this present culture is so feelings-oriented. My feelings determine everything. You know what? Look at me. Your feelings determine nothing. The gospel understood leads to an abiding rejoicing that transcends circumstances. The gospel will help me love people who hate me. We're going to talk about that next time. I shouldn't have let that cat out of the bag. Some of you will stay home because you don't want to hear it. <laughs> Look at this from Old Testament and New Testament. Psalm 6410. Let the righteous one be miserable until the Lord comes. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in Him. Let all the upright in heart rejoice or exult. If you are upright in heart, which means if you are converted and a child of God, if you are in Christ, you should be exulting. It doesn't mean you're not real about the hardships of life. But you have inside information on what, what they are and what, what's happening. And whatever your life looks like right now, I promise you, you deserve far, far worse. We should all be in hell right now. You get that, right? If you don't believe that, you don't get it. Okay? But we're not. Let the upright in heart exalt. If I get the gospel, it's like, yes. I get it. And exulting is not always a happy feeling. Okay? We can exult and be crying tears of sadness. We can rejoice and be crying tears of sadness. Joy is a deep-seated contentment in God and His will for me in Christ. 
that gives me an ease and a rest in the midst of life's difficulties. That's what Paul could say in Philippians 4.4. 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. When, he start, when God starts repeating stuff, pretty important. Look back at our verse. One of the ways I know I'm on fire for the Lord is that I'm rested in His grace and therefore rejoicing in hope. I'm confident that Christ has taken my condemnation, paid that debt fully. His righteousness is on my account. When the, before the judgment bar of God, it reads righteous in thought, word, and deed. To pass from this life is to pass immediately into the presence of my Savior. And He will use me in this life and make everything that He brings into my life. He is sovereign. He'll make it work for me. We all have to walk through the valley of shadow of death. We all have to walk through struggles and trials. Thankfully, He's designed it so we do that together because we lose, individually, we lose hope. You're not designed to be a lone ranger. If you won't let people in, repent. So, question, are you rejoicing in His grace and living with hope for the future? If not, you're not on fire. (laughs) Rejoice in hope. Look at the next one. They're related. Patient in tribulation. Patient in trouble. Patient in the trials of this life. I'm going to confess my sin to you. You see if you can relate. When trouble hits my life, the first thing I do is go, Help, get me out. Take it away. And sometimes he does. We should rejoice. But here's my point. When he doesn't, we should rejoice. And rest and know that he is for us. We don't know better than he does. Should I say that again? We don't know better than he does. We think we know how things should be. But we need to look to Him and His Word to be recalibrated. See, listen to me. How can I be patient in trouble? Here's, here's, if, you, if you are rebelling or if you don't know this or you're rebelling against this or you wish it wasn't true, because He is sovereign. That's the only way. He's in control. There's not a maverick molecule in the universe, R.C. Sproul said. He is sovereign over the minute, the blades of grass, the hairs on people's heads, the sparrow that falls. Not one falls apart from his will. I can be patient in the midst of my trouble because I know he's with me and for me and he's in control and he's going to work this all out for his glory and my good. and He's going to take me through it and grow me in grace and faith. But if he's not in control, listen, it's over. How can you rejoice always? How can you be patient in tribulation? If he's not sovereign. Now, he's not just sovereign. Holy and righteous and good and gracious and merciful and long. You know, he's all these things. But he promises to make these trials work out for my good. Do we believe him? And you can tell whether or not you believe Him if you're grumbling about what's going on. If you're letting trouble isolate you from the body of Christ. 
if you don't want to get out of the bed or however that hits us. We, know, we think we know better. We're not trusting in His sovereignty. We're not resting in His grace. And Christians go through times like that, don't we? And sometimes we need another brother or sister to come and go, Love you. Look. Not at me. Look up. He's got you. I got you. I'm not going to quit on you. And He's not going to quit on you. He promises to work all of my trials out for my good. You Go back to the sermon on Romans 5. We rejoice in our troubles. Are we crazy? Well, some people, yeah, maybe. No. We rejoice because we know this theology that He's in control and He's using it. I don't look for trouble. Well, sometimes I do by being stupid. But in, intentionally, I don't go out looking for trouble. That was my youth. But it comes. And when it comes, I need to determine, is this stupid tax or is this just the the trials of life? And if it's stupid tax, I should learn from that and not do that again. Like if I've done something dumb and I'm paying for it. But if if I can't find anything, it's just, okay, he's like Job. No one more righteous than Job and the bottom fell out. It wasn't because he sinned, even though his friends thought so. And then remember Romans eight twenty three to 25. We groan in hope. We have hope. We're patient in that rejoicing standing. But we're real about it. It's hard. We groan, right? But we don't groan in unbelief. That's the difference. We groan in hope. A hope fueled by His Word. We're honest with one another that it's hard. We cry tears, right? Just like people who don't know Christ. But we, we, we mourn but we mourn with hope because of the gospel. That's why James can say, and you're familiar with the verse, but I keep putting it out there because I need to hear it, and I think maybe you do too. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, see, there's something you know to do this. You have to know things to do this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience. And let it have its perfect work, it goes on. But look at that. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Rejoice. I mean, when I think count it all joy, I think I, might, I should be jumping up and down here. Not in the thing itself, right? But in the fact that God is with me in it and promises to make it work for me. The fact that I can look to Christ and know He's taking care of all things. The fact that He's sovereign, I can know He's in control. To the extent that you're a controller, you can't have this kind of joy. And let me set you free. You think you're in control of some stuff? You're not. Now, we're to be disciplined and diligent and try to make, you know, order things and make them the way they should be. But we're not in control of our next breath or our next heartbeat. Or whether or not you fill in the blank. Loves me or is going to love me. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. How can we do that? Well, Colossians 1.11, and go read that in context. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Being on fire for the Lord. Having a boiling spirit. One in which the spirit as it were. Look why, look why we're empowered though. 
for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance and what? Patience. See, trials are coming. And they'll test our faith. But as believers, one of the things they do for us is they make us more patient. But that comes through training as He trains us through these things to do this. When I'm thinking right, I don't immediately say, oh, take it away. If I'm thinking right, I immediately say, what are you doing? What, what is the lesson? What should I learn? Help me to be rejoicing even in the midst of this and patient in the midst of this, knowing that you're with me and for me and at work. And then very, very related, look at the, the next one, being constant in prayer. Staying in close touch with your loving Savior who is with you and for you, who lived for you and died for you and was raised for you, who promises you that He makes all things work together for your good. We saw that in chapter 8. Believe Him. And pray into this reality. And stay near His throne of grace. Because life is going to be hard and confusing. Notice I didn't say unless. Life is going to be hard and confusing. But in the midst of hard and confusing, I can rejoice and be patient if I'm living near Him. Constant in prayer. Look at me. No relationship can flourish without regular communication. I know some of you saying, well, I wish my spouse would try that for a while. Just be quiet for a little while. We'll work on what's causing that problem if that's there. No relationship can flourish without regular communication. Regular prayer is central to the Christian life. And see, the problem is we've turned prayer into a performance and we're afraid we're doing it wrong, so we just don't do it. That's the reason we won't pray in public. We pray, I'm not going to do it right or say the right word. What are the right words? We just we cry out to our God. He speaks to us and we speak to Him. So you want to hear God speak to you? Read His Word. You want to hear Him speak out loud? Read it out loud. See, we, we hear and respond. So one of the best things you can do with the Psalms is pray through them. Have you ever done that? Do you even know what I'm talking about? I think there's some books praying Scripture over there. Praying through the Psalms. Constant in prayer. Not ten minutes and done. That just kicks off the day. But we walk in a constant attitude of prayer. Being patient in the midst of our trouble and rejoicing in our Savior. That's what it means to be on fire for the Lord. To walk in rejoicing and patience, we must be in prayer. Look at Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And in Thessalonians, he brings a lot of these things together. Rejoice always. 
in case you misunderstood. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In the midst of this trial that you wish were over, if you can turn the corner of rejoicing and resting and being patient and prayerful and thanking God in the midst of it, Ephesians says thanking God for it. God, I don't understand this and I don't understand why it's this way, but I thank you for it. I promise you, you will begin to feel differently. You will begin to relate to others differently. You will extend to them the grace that's been extended to you. And be patient with the Lord and with people. Rejoice. A boiling spirit rejoices always, prays without ceasing, gives thanks to the Lord in all circumstances. Look at this. This is explicitly said in very few things. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pastor, what is God's will for me? That you always be rejoicing in Him and resting in His grace. That you be very patient in the trials and troubles of this life. And be constant in prayer. Those who are on fire for the Lord walk around daily in a rejoicing, patient attitude of prayer. That's the vertical element, isn't it? Now let's just quickly talk about the horizontal element. Point number two. Be eager to honor one another. So we outdo one another in showing honor to the Lord, and then we outdo one another in honoring one another. But look at the specifics here. Now we're getting a little, some more specifics as we look to this in verse 13. Be eager to honor one another. One, one who is on fire for the Lord is one who honors, you could say, uh, assigns the proper worth and dignity and all that stuff we talked about, and serves their brothers and sisters by, number one. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Why is it that when we hear that word contributing, we immediately think money? Well, it might be because we're trying to protect the pot. Oh, no, he's going to talk about money again. Well, I'm not afraid to talk about money. That can be your spin-up, not mine. But God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can do whatever he wants to do with it. But it, it says, if we are... Loving with genuine love, you could back up all the way there if you need to, then we'll contribute to the needs of the saints. But this, see, this, yeah, this is resources sometimes. Sometimes you have resources and some, a brother or sister doesn't, and you contribute to that need. But other times it's time, it's presence, it's counsel, it's encouragement, it's cutting their grass or whatever. It is. Look at just a glimpse of the early church. Acts 2.44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. If they, maybe they had two houses or maybe they had two pieces of property and they would sell one of them and bring the proceeds and lay it at the apostles' feet so the apostles could distribute it to those who were in need. But their attitude was, this is God's stuff, and I am a manager of God's stuff. And so I'm open-handed with it, and if he shows me a need and, and has me able to contribute to that, then I will. But look at what they were doing. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
They did this out of love for the Lord and out of love for one another. Look at me. This is not socialism. This is not communism. This is not somebody stealing your stuff so they can give it to somebody else. I use the word steal rightly in that setting. Okay? This is hearts on fire for the Lord. Having this ability to give to those who were suffering. So that it said of the early church, and you see it in Acts, there wasn't a needy person among them. Now, they would also, if someone was unwilling to work, they'd get church discipline. They were not enabling, right? But true need ministered to. If I'm filled with the Spirit, I'll have a genuine generosity and a willingness to contribute of my time, talents, and resources to the needs of the saints. Not because I have to. I mean, what did Peter say to Ananias? Was it not yours before you sold it? And after you sold it. See, Ananias' problem was that he didn't give everything. It was that he acted like he gave everything and held back a part. He lied. But the early church is a great snapshot of this kind of devotion to being on fire for the Lord and being rejoicing and patient and trusting the Lord to provide and using what He provides to bless others in their time, talent, and resources. And you see that all through the book of Acts. And then secondly, this is a whole sermon series on its own, but showing hospitality. Ministry to strangers, literally from the Word. Some, having done that, have ministered to angels. Go read Hebrews 13, 2, I think. But this, is, this, this primarily had reference to taking in fellow believers. Listen, I'm not telling you to go to the streets and take thieves and robbers into your house and endanger your family. It's not what this is saying and telling you to do. Wisdom comes into the picture as well and shepherding, all of that. But primarily, when this is talking about to one another, practicing hospitality with one another, taking in fellow... There were no Motel 6s in that day. And you can see this throughout the Word, that, that those who were, whose ministry was traveling, maybe they were traveling preachers or, or servants or however that looked in the, in the culture, that, that, that they were, Paul would instruct to care for people like that and to take them in. Hospitality, yes, it's having people over for a meal. Okay? But it's way more than that. It doesn't stop there. It might mean providing clothing and shelter and all this kind of stuff. And sending people on their way blessed. I mean, Jesus assumed that this took place in the Jewish culture. When he sent out the 12 and the 72. And you can go read that. But in Luke 9, 3 and 4, he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. He's teaching them here. That he's going to be with them and provide for them and take care of them. A lot of times in ministry, he'll take us to that place where we have no, nothing to go on. And then he'll open that door. He trains you. But look at this. He says, in verse 4, And whatever house you enter, stay there and depart from there. 
So he assumed that as his disciples were traveling, as they would go into certain towns, they would, the people there would be hospitable and take them in. And especially the followers of Christ later, but I mean, right now, this is early on. And you read the Old Testament, you'll see Abraham's hospitality ended up being far more than he expected. And others' hospitality, right? On down the line. On the road to Emmaus. Those disciples took in far more than they thought they were taking in, didn't they? Jesus with them. So listen, one who is fervent in spirit, boiling in the spirit, one who is on fire for the Lord, will be one who is not lazy but diligent in serving the Lord, one who personally is rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation and constant in prayer, one who is willing and quick to contribute to the needs of the saints and to show hospitality. So in light of all that... Are you boiling in the Spirit? Are you on fire for the Lord? Are you focused on honoring and glorifying the Lord first? And does, listen to me, does your heart reveal whether or not you really understand the gospel and are fully applying it to your life? In the midst of all of this that we're living in, are you rejoicing in hope? If not, there's some recalibrating to do. Some running to the cross. Some getting of the gospel that needs to be grown. Are you patient in trouble? Man, those around you can answer that question, can't they? And are you constant in prayer with the Lord? Yes, in an official devotional time, not legalistic, but just out of love for the Lord. But then throughout the day, mindful of Him, resting in Him, bringing His promises to mind, thanking Him, enjoying Him, praying to Him. See, these are just some of the things the Spirit produces in the life of the person He saves. Just just let it instruct you. Let it show you where you need to grow. See, grumblers are not people that are doing this. Complainers are not people that are doing this. Well, I've just had it. I can't take any more of this. Aren't you thankful Jesus didn't say that when He was on the cross? Look to the Lord. Be strengthened and encouraged in the midst of your trial. And I know it's hard. But the Gospel is that big. Your Savior is this big. He's with you and for you and making it work for you. And are you on fire for the Lord, meaning you're focused on loving and serving your brothers and sisters? See, this is all giving us more definition of genuine love in verse 9. And more recently, what it looks like to outdo one another in showing honor. Lord first, brother and sister. We're to love one another the way Christ loved us. We said that. Our neighbor as self. Being confident of His love and acceptance enables me to love even those who don't deserve it. And if I'll remember, my my sin problems are much bigger than whatever I see in them. I can get the beam out of my own eye and quit beating people up with the beam that's sticking out of my head. I'll be much better off. But let the Lord minister to you. If you're his child, he's not mean to you in convicting you of not being a person who is patiently rejoicing in prayer. 
But he's instructing you. He's drawing you close to himself and saying, Child, let me deliver you. Why are you carrying all this? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will beat you up. Is that what he said? I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Rest for your soul is found near to Jesus. And those who are near to Jesus are the ones who can be said to be on fire for the Lord. So let's change our opening quote just a little bit. Dead people are people who do not understand the gospel and seek to growingly live for the Lord. Living people, on fire people, are those who understand and apply the gospel so that their lives look more and more like their Savior's life. If the gospel is being heard and properly responded to, then we are on fire from the, uh, we are on fire for the Lord. We have life in Him, which is defined as genuine love in our text. If the true gospel is not being heard and properly responded to, it matters not if everyone is running around with sparks flying from their hair. They are dead and not on fire for the Lord. May the Lord truly set you on fire for Him. And may He grant you a gentle and genuine growing love for His glory and for your good. To live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we just need help. We so quickly get our eyes off of You. We so quickly forget Your grace and how amazing it is for wretches like us. Many times we're not walking in this life rejoicing, patient, and prayerful. And we have our eyes focused on ourselves instead of focused out and focused on helping others. Help us, Lord. I pray for any who don't know you under the sound of my voice, for gospel seeds to be sown in their hearts. If they think they know you and they don't, reveal that to them. For those who don't know you, we pray for their conversion. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, may this not be a discouraging message, but a challenging message challenging with the gospel that we would press into this kind of being on fire for you, which is just simply defined as growing in grace. May we be pressing into the cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives so that we can walk in confidence and peace through the storm, walk in faith, be rejoicing in you, Patient and constant in prayer. Work in us by your Spirit and for your glory and for our good to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing one more. One of my favorites. He will hold me 